Glad that you're with us. We'll have more time afterwards for fellowship and some coffee or tea. Stay warm in this nice, cool weather, fall weather that we are experiencing now. I want to welcome you. My name is Dan Song. I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. We're glad that you're with us uh, as we worship the true and living God. Um, we were in our vision series for five, four weeks, and then we were at the retreat last week. Um, and so we're actually picking back up in our Acts series uh, that we began last spring, right after Easter into the fall or summer. Um, and now we're picking this back up in the third missionary journey of Paul. Now, we start in Acts 1 where we saw the story of the church begin to unfold, right? We saw how the Spirit came upon these believers, 120 of them, as they prayed. And God established His church as miracles and wonders and teachings were happening about this Jesus who died and rose again is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And from there, we saw how Paul, Saul, formerly known, came to become a Christian who was killing Christians at one time. And because God called him to the work of Gentiles, to non-Jewish people, he began to go outside of Jerusalem to be able to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to others. And so he went on one missionary journey, then a second that we looked at in the summer. And now as we come back into Acts, we're going to look at the last this third missionary journey of Paul, which concludes uh, right before Advent, uh, where he is in Rome, imprisoned, uh, where he will be executed. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the rest of this fall before we go into this season of preparing our hearts for Christmas. And so I'm going to invite Angela to come on up, Angela Kim. If you have a Bible, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 43. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we do have church Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. And if you're using that, you could turn to page 928, 928 of your church Bibles. Or you could just follow along on the screen in front of you. So let's give, a, let's give attention to God's word as it's being read. Now after these events, Paul reads the word from our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Angela. Pray with me. Lord, we come before you this morning and we thank you that you are the one true living God. And we, we confess, we admit, Lord, we have so many things that we worship, so many things we idolize. But Lord, I pray this morning, even as we sung this morning, that we might see how great you are. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2010, there was a man named Forrest Fenn who wrote a a self-memoir entitled The Thrill of the Chase. And in this book that he self-published, he wrote about this treasure that he had buried somewhere in the Rockies. And he gave these cryptic clues, specifically a 24-verse poem telling people where he had buried this treasure worth $2 million of gold and precious gems. Now, as people began to get wind of this book that he had published, it began this firestorm of people selling all, quitting work, selling everything they had to find this treasure somewhere in the Rockies. The problem with this was that Forrest Fenn never imagined what he would endure by writing such a book and disclosing where this treasure might be. He endured stalkers, death threats, 
home invasions, lawsuits, and potential kidnapping. It was so dangerous that as people ventured to find this treasure, four people have died from it. Now, it became such a sensation that they estimate over 300,000 people spent their time trying to decipher the clues and embark what would be a life-altering, life-changing hike in the wilderness. And this happened over 10 years when during the pandemic, you guys might remember this, in June of the pandemic in 2020, it was finally found by someone anonymous. Now, why I share this is because whether it's these people that looked for this treasure or us, whatever we treasure, whatever we want, we will do whatever it costs to get it. And here in this story, we see this exactly happen to Demetrius and his silversmith buddies. They will do whatever it costs to protect what they love and what they treasure. That's why I called this sermon this morning, Counterfeit Gods. For Christians in this room that follow Jesus, we believe and we profess with our words and our lips that God is ultimate. He deserves everything. We will bend our knee to our God who created this universe, who created us and everything in it. And yet we make the things that God has created into ultimate things to replace God with. And I think we struggle We struggle to believe that God is enough. We struggle and we do not believe that God is truly enough. And so we search and we search for what will bring us fulfillment and satisfaction, even if it means death. Tim Keller, who passed away recently, was a pastor at Redeemer in New York and has written many books. He said this about idolatry or counterfeit gods. Idolatry is taking good things and making them ultimate things. It's not that idolatry is just a bad thing. Idolatry is taking relative and created things and turning them into absolutes. The language of idolatry, if you recognize it in yourself, would be something like this. Your heart says, well, yes, you believe in God and all that. That's very important. But if you have that, if you could achieve this, If you could only get to that thing, then you'd really be somebody. Then you'd be happy. Then you'd be safe. Then everything would be okay. That's idolatry. Those are the counterfeit gods we will do anything to get and to keep at whatever cost. Just like these people, these 300,000 who are looking for Forrest Fenn's treasure. And so this morning, as we look at these counterfeit gods, I want to look at three things. The cost of counterfeits. Secondly, the rage of counterfeits. And then lastly, the impotence of counterfeits. The cost of counterfeits. Now, we have to see one thing about Ephesus in this city. Ephesus contained one of the seven great wonders of the world. And it was a temple of Artemis. And This temple was four times larger than the Parthenon. And it was arguably probably the greatest and most impressive Greek temple ever built and created. Artemis was the goddess of fertility and birth. 
So you can imagine how important Artemis was to their culture. You're talking about life. You're talking about birth and fertility. This was everything for this culture and for, for the world. And here they worshipped Artemis in this temple. So it shouldn't surprise us then when we come upon this man, Demetrius, who's a silversmith. And what does he do for a living? He creates little Artemises, these little goddesses of Artemis, and sells it and makes a killing off of it. He says to all the people that he gathers, he says, no little business has been done in our craftsmanship, right? And you know that from this business, we have our wealth. Now, some of us might think that's strange, but we have our temples of Artemis as well. This Sunday and tomorrow night, we have the temples of Arrowhead. We have the temples of Soldier Field. These are football fields or stadiums that you might not know. Sunday is a very important day, as many of you are probably checking your fantasy football team to see who's injured or who might not be playing. And what do we do? We don on our $100, $200 uniforms. We create and we buy our little statues of Lou Brock, right? Or of Ozzie Smith or of Bruce Smith. We don on our little idols that we put on because why? We worship them because of their greatness. And Demetrius does the same. This is an old, old thing that has happened for thousands of years. And Demetrius has gotten wealthy selling these little Artemises. But this is where the gods clash. Because as Demetrius is making his wealth off of the goddess Artemis, Paul comes preaching the gospel. And, our, and Demetrius says it himself. He says the words of Paul. He says, Paul says, gods made with hands are no gods at all. And Demetrius is being confronted with the God of creation. And he feels threatened and he gathers all of the people who are making these things and making a lot of money. And he's shrewd. He's a smart dude. And what he does is uses the guise of the greatness of Artemis and says, we can't let that happen. Artemis is great. Artemis is amazing. We will lose our trade. This is our work. How can we lose because of this God that Paul is preaching about, this good news of Jesus? And he uses the guise of Artemis to persuade these other silversmiths and trademen that this is unacceptable. But what's really going on in Demetrius' heart? It's not Artemis. It's his wealth. It's his love for money. It's his love for security. It's his love for control. It's his love for fill in the blank. Whatever these counterfeit gods are, they have confronted him and they confront us as God comes to us, declaring the good news of who he is and what he has done in our lives. This is what the gospel of Jesus does for us as well, not just Demetrius. It confronts our idols, whatever, whatever we find significant. 
Whatever we have made ultimate. And then ask, are you willing to lose everything for the sake of the gospel? Your jobs, your careers, your families, your reputation, your success, your control, your power. Following Jesus is costly. Jesus said this himself as he talked to his disciples. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for me, for my sake, will find it. You see, the cost of counterfeit gods is immense. It's intense. But here what we begin to see and what is so ironic is that when you begin to cling on to your gods, your counterfeit gods, and whatever, for whatever it takes and whatever is at stake, you're actually becoming enslaved. You're the one who's actually being cost, that costs everything, right? You're so imprisoned to your own love for money, your success, your wealth, your control, that you cling to these things and you hold on to it for dear life, even if it costs your own life. And what these counterfeit gods do is they promise everything and demand nothing but what happens over time. Over time, as you worship control, as you worship money and success and your careers, what do you find? That they promise nothing and demand everything of you. And as Paul declares the good news of Jesus, he knows that freedom only comes in Christ. He witnessed it, didn't he? We saw this in Acts 7 and 8. As Stephen, a follower of Jesus, is being stoned, what happens? Paul is there approving of the stoning of Stephen. And as Stephen is dying, Paul witnesses the freedom that is in Stephen. That even in his death, there is joy because he sees heaven open up and Jesus standing. And Paul, though he is enraged, holding on to his own idols of the Old Testament, of the laws, of the rituals, he remembers that in Stephen, though he dies for his Christ, for his God, there's freedom because there's joy as he dies. And that sticks with him. And he remembers that in his own conversion as he comes to follow Jesus himself. And Paul writes about that all throughout his letters. In Philippians, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering and becoming like him in his death. That's freedom. When you have nothing to lose anymore, when even death is no longer feared. That's true freedom. But when we worship our counterfeit gods, we have to actually wonder what's at stake What's the cost? And here Demetrius is willing to hold on to it for dear life. Not only is there a cost, but when we're threatened with the idols or the counterfeit gods we hold on to, we rage, don't we? We rage. And we see this here in Demetrius and the entire city of Ephesus. Now, because Demetrius' great and shrewd speech to the guild he begins to provoke their fears of loss and what's at stake and what's so costly and what happens. They get enraged. That's the word that's used here. 
They're enraged. They're angry. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is the Artemis of, of the Ephesians. And because of their rage, what do they do? They drag Gaius and Aristarchus into the stadium, into this beautiful temple of Artemis. And it held about 25,000 people. Enterprise Center, where the Blues play, holds about 22,000 people. So imagine, it's, about, it's pretty similar. And imagine, imagine the entire city of St. Louis filling that stadium and dragging you to the center of that rink. And with rage and wrath and anger, they begin to shout at you, great is Artemis, because they are threatened. And they are angry. For two hours, they do this, and their lives are, are threatened, are in danger. The entire city is in uproar. And what I want us to see here is when our lives are in jeopardy, with the counterfeit gods we hold on to, we will do whatever to protect them, but we will also tr show our true emotions that will come to the surface. And that's where we have to pay attention to our emotions. When we don't get what we want, we will fight. James says that in his book. He says, why do we fight? Why do we quarrel? Well, we want something and we do not get it. And at the heart of it, that is an idol issue. It is a counterfeit God issue. Why do we rage? Why do we get angry? Why do we become hopeless and dejected? Why do we experience despair? Why are we anxious? It's because we don't get what we want. A pastor friend shared this story with me a few years ago. And he said there was this one day many years ago that they, their three-year-old son wanted the chocolate Easter bunny that they had gotten. And because it was right before dinner, this presented a problem for him, right? And so the dad being nice said, fine, you can have a little piece of the ear. But when this three-year-old son heard this, he raged. <laughs> he was shouting, great is the chocolate Easter bunny. And so this pastor friend sent uh, his son down to the basement and after he calmed down, he went down and wanted to ask him a few questions. And the first question he said was, is chocolate good? And in the fear of punishment, the son said, no. <laughs> and so he had to correct him and say, no, chocolate is one of God's greatest creations in the world. So don't ever say it's good. But is chocolate God? And he said, no. So this pastor friend said, well, what happens when you make something good into a God? And this three-year-old son said this, I get ugly. I get ugly. That's what happens to the Ephesians, and that's what happens to you and to me. We get ugly. And our emotions let us know that. So we need to pay attention. We need to repent. We need to pray we need to share with our others in your community groups, with your friends, of the things that we hold on to and cling to so that we might be able to know that God is good enough, that he is great as we sung this morning. But the last thing we see is not only 
It's the cost and the rage of these counterfeit gods. But lastly, we see the impotence of these counterfeit gods. And the reason I say that is as Artemis and the God of creation clash, what we see here is actually the impotence, the powerlessness, the weakness of Artemis and the greatness of God. And we see this in a really interesting way because as they clash, God uses a city clerk who does not follow Jesus, a city clerk of Ephesus, to advance the gospel in the face of idolatry. Now, what happens? While the city is raging in, this, in the temple of Artemis, and they're about to threaten and kill Gaius and Aristarchus, what happens? This little city clerk comes into the stadium silences the crowd somehow we don't know how but he does and he gives four arguments in why they need to shut up and just leave and the first is this in verse 35 and 36 he says artemis is not being threatened artemis is great you don't have to worry about that artemis is our goddess and so why are you fretting about what paul is preaching but secondly in verse 37 he says these men have done nothing to be to, that would be accounted as sacrilege. And so what are you being stirred up and writing about? And third, Demetrius, you should know better the legal proceedings and how things are supposed to actually happen. And brother, you are out of order. And then lastly, he says in verse 40, you're going to get in trouble by Rome. <laughs> for all this rioting and the raucous that you're, crowd, you're creating. So get on out of here and leave. And what happens? The city clerk dismisses them and they leave. God, our great powerful God, is so much more powerful than any of the other counterfeit gods we worship. God uses a city clerk to advance the gospel, to prevent no hindrances or obstacles for the gospel to continue to be preached and proclaimed and for people to follow Jesus. God is all-powerful, and the things we hold on to are worth letting go of because of the all-powerful God that we worship. This is the good news of the gospel. We just heard a beautiful story and testimony from our brother here this morning of Noah sharing of how God has orchestrated all things and we've all, maybe most of us have been on campuses and gone through college and colleges have millions upon millions of counterfeit gods and we are tempted to follow them but here we see the power of God that Noah just shared about of how a hundred people came and we, maybe they came for the, the, the God, uh, God of uh, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> but 70 stayed. 70 stayed to be able to hear the good news of the gospel. God is moving. God is working because he is powerful. The things that we hold on and cling to are impotent. They are weak and have no bearing or power on the work that God is doing in your lives and in mine. So that's what we need to hold on to. That's what we need to cling to. We need to hold on to Christ. Think about Jesus. You talk about cost. It cost him everything. 
He left the riches of heaven, the glories of heaven, and put on human flesh. He put on mortality. You talk about cost. And he suffered. He took the shame and ridicule of his humanity, of his creation, and he hung on the cross and died. That's costly. You talk about emotions and anger. All of his emotions were never for himself. It was for us. His love to defend our, our, our honor and our name. He loved us so much. He, his sorrow, even his anger, was to defend his Father in heaven. His anger was so that he might protect his sheep. His sorrows were so that he might see us follow him and not stray away. And you talk about his power. His love led him to the cross, but it is power that kept him on the cross. His power was the one that put death to death. His power was the one that rose him from the grave so that we might live forever, so that we might reign with Jesus forever, that we might not need to worry, that we might not need to be anxious, that we might never, ever lose. And to utter the same words of Paul, that we might become like him in his death and to know the power of his resurrection. This is why every counterfeit God is nothing. It is rubbish. That's why I love the hymn, Give Me Jesus. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. When I am alone, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, that is our prayer. Give me Jesus. There are many things that we, our eyes are open to, that we want and crave. They're willing to even put our lives on the line for because we think these things will bring us meaning and satisfaction even our own justification. But Lord, we know the truth. We know how good you are, how great you are, how powerful you are, that it costs you everything so that we might be able to declare our love for you. So Lord, I pray this morning that in the face of all the counterfeit gods that we are tempted to follow and cling to, Lord, I pray that our hearts would cry out, give me Jesus. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.